Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. Uh, today, before we do anything else, I want to announce the winner of a contest we had in social media a few weeks back. D-Pat's Photography um, actually ended up winning that contest. Uh, D-Pat's Photography is awesome. Um, he's actually at some of the Outlaw Racing, Southern Rock Racing Series, and Pro Rock Racing events. He takes awesome pictures for the off-road world. Um, I highly suggest you guys check him out at dpatsphotography.com. He is on Facebook and Instagram as well. Um, we will actually be hosting and are currently hosting another social media contest where you can get in and get your shout-out, get uh, get some representation on the podcast. It's really cool. Uh, you can find it in our Instagram bio. You can find it on our main post on our Facebook page. Uh, what we're doing is we're gathering a bunch of gear from a bunch of different race teams. Uh, we're actually starting to gather parts that are going in this giveaway too. This week we added a 1000 XP Razor um, drivetrain belt to go into that. So the winner will just get that for free. So shout out to everyone who's already signed up. If you haven't signed up, check out the Instagram, Facebook. Like I said, it's on there. Um, we've made it pretty clear to go sign up for that competition. I highly recommend that you go like us, subscribe on YouTube or whatever platform you're listening on. Um, it's awesome. It's great. I'm really excited. We got a ton of good feedback, uh, a ton of good response, and um, we've actually got some really cool sponsors stepping on board here pretty soon. Uh, and one of our sponsors is Infinite Off-Road. Infinite Off-Road uh, has a crazy warranty on their products. A 25-year, you break it, we replace it on all Infinite Off-Road branded products. Uh, that includes rock lights, wheel rings, power controllers for all their electronics, um, which include the UTV mirrors and grills with built-in lighting, high-output light bars and pods, and the rock lights. Now the rock lights are really unique. Um, I kind of feel like I'm beating a dead horse because I really do believe in these products. I've seen these products work in person. Um, I run their light bars on all my rigs. Uh, I ran them on my Jeeps when I did Jeeps. Um, but their rock lights specifically are red, green, blue, white rock lights. Um, they are the actually only rock lights on the market that include a pure dedicated white emitter rather than mixing colors to create white. Um, it's got twice the emitters, so you get twice the output, richer colors, and you get twice the widest patterns. Uh, you come with a Bluetooth controller, a handheld remote, aluminum casing. You can mount this, however. Um, Mike, the owner of Infinite Off-Road, does a really good job of explaining where to put it, how to mount it. It mounts in there really easy. Uh, and I want to give a big shout out to Mike because his customer service is awesome. Uh, he's on Facebook, uh, he's on Instagram, and he has a website, infiniteoffroad.com. Feel free, give him a shout. Uh, go check it out, and uh, if you guys buy something, tell him you guys came from the uh, the podcast, and that'll be really cool. Uh, today on the show, we have Dustin Robbins, owner uh, of All Things UTV. He actually just recently acquired a powder coating uh, company as well, and most importantly, according to the podcast, uh, Dustin's a avid racer um, in, in his uh, his brand new turbo that he's running. Uh, I can tell you, we talk a little bit about some things in the past, some things in the future. Dustin's got an awesome setup right now with the new acquisition of a brand new Turbo S. Um, there's a little secret to where that Turbo S came from if you guys listen to the podcast in its entirety. Um, but something really neat is Dustin talks about how he got to where he is, how he got to become successful. Um, he's a great guy. He, he really is just a testament to to being able to go out on your own and, and, and make things happen. But without giving too much away, Dustin Robin, ladies and gentlemen, enjoy it.
get a drink and gather around. Let's talk drivers. Let's talk rigs. Let's talk skill. You've got the best of the best in the off-road racing world. Have a seat at the table with us and let's talk about racing on the rocks. Hey Dustin, how you doing? Oh, uh, doing pretty good. Good, man, good. I uh, first and foremost want to thank you for coming on the show. Uh, one of the most important things to me is that we get a, a variety of drivers, and uh, you're actually someone I wanted to talk to for a while. I, I saw you were out at King of Hammers, and um, I've actually purchased from your business before. So, uh, you know, uh, just one of those guys that I really wanted to get a chance to sit down and, and talk with because you've got a unique experience. You're a driver, uh, a retailer. You've kind of got, you got, you got your hand in everything, it seems like. So, um, before we get into anything too crazy, uh, let's talk about Dustin. Where are you guys based out of? Uh, we're from uh, North Alabama, Huntsville area. Okay. Um, now... What what races are you racing in this year? Because I know a lot of the races are either in Kentucky, or Tennessee, or Alabama. This year, um, I'm on contract with several sponsors uh, to run some of the West Coast. Oh. Uh, last year, we leave Saturday, um, you know, uh, March 16th to fly out to uh, Southern California. And we're going to travel up the West Coast on a kind of a family vacation. And then we're going to end up at the uh, Prairie City Off-Road Park to run the Metal Cloak Stampede Ultra 4 West, the first round of Ultra 4 West. So are you guys going to end up running, you know, any more Ultra 4 races other than that one segment? Um, we're going to run, man, I, like I said, I'm on contract to run several of the West the way I've got my program set up was to run Metal Cloak Stampede, and I've got a race car out there that I'm planning to leave in Reno and then come back in October to race the Ultra 4 Finals. Yeah. And then I've got an East Coast race car, which is a 2019, uh, that we're set up to run East Coast with. So I've got a car there and a car here. Okay, awesome. That's that's a really good idea. So um, let's go ahead and, and, and just, let's talk about you again. I kind of jumped ahead because uh, I, I wanted to know exactly where you guys normally operate out of, but how'd you get into racing? How'd you get into trail riding? Where did it all start for you? I got a four-wheeler uh, for my fourth birthday, and I started wrecking immediately. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that sounds like it. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, my five-year-old, she actually just got a four-wheeler, and it's got one of those remote cutoffs. And uh, anytime she gets, I have a fence, and anytime she gets close to my fence, I'm like slamming that cutoff button. So I can only imagine being four on one of those things. Yeah, it was a, a Suzuki 50, and there was no remote shutoff. It nice. was you fall off, and then it <laughs> rolls to the stop, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so when did you guys get into, into trail riding? Because obviously, you know, four is a super young age. Were you guys out riding on trails at that age? Man, personally, you know, I, I was from a mixed family, um, and I think I started picking up scraps on a, on a job site, you know, for my stepdad was a contractor at mm -hmm. seven. Wow. You know, and then racing and trail riding was maybe once or twice a year, but it was every, you know, I always longed to be out on the trail. Yeah. You know, dirt bikes on TV, Supercross back in the day, motocross racing, stuff like that, just watching it on TV. And they would, we would barter like a trail ride for blowing all the leaves or raking all the, all the leaves off the yard. Oh, that's Which, awesome. So it was always an insane amount of work to 
accomplish maybe a trail ride, which we all I always did. Me and my brother always did it. Yeah. But it was few and far between because we worked all the time. And even at seven, I mean, I didn't do much. I can't say that I was a hard laborer or broke any labor laws, but I was on the job site while they were working, and, you know, they would pay me $13 a day or something like that. Yeah. Know, so. Yeah, well, that's but, awesome. You know, the trail riding came in when I was able to drive. Um, actually, after I, you know, pretty much when I got out of high school, I had to sell my first dirt bike to buy a truck. Um, but I always bought on my own dirt bike. So I've been trail riding since I, I think I got my first, my next dirt bike when I was for my 11th birthday. Mm-hmm. What kind of bike was it? It was a Suzuki DS80. Very nice. Very nice. Uh, yeah, so you got on the you got on the trail on a bike, and you you know you said you had a four wheeler. You went to a bike. Um, you know, did you make the jump from bike to full size or bike to side by side? What did it end up being for you? Once again, money coming into play and, then, and working <laughs> all the time. You yeah. know, the DS eighty sold it, and then um, when I was thirteen, fourteen. We had an option between a CR125 and 85 model or an 86 CR250. Mm-hmm. Well, my stepdad jumped on the CR125. He said, well, the clutch is slipping on this one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're the same size. <laughs> you know, motocross bikes sit identical. <laughs> right, know? yeah. But this one right here seems like a better bike. So at 13 years old, I was riding an 86 CR250. <laughs> Woo! Man. Yeah, I had to, I would pull up to the neighbor's house and I had my tree to where I would lean it up against the tree and I had my center block that I would stand on to start it. But, yeah, I believe it. You know, that was straight to the wolf pack right there, brother. Yeah, you know? no, no kidding. Sharp That's, learning curve. Yeah, I'd imagine so. Now, I've, I've, I've only been on bikes a handful of times, but something like that, you know, depending on how much you weigh, you know, it can really throw you around. That sounds like a lot of bikes. Uh, it was a lot of bike. Uh, back then, I didn't realize how much a tire really worked. Yeah. <laughs> so the tire was pretty bald. Yeah. You know, I, I never put a tire on it. You know, racing motocross, you put a tire on every right, on right. every every you know practice or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you know, I never knew. That's probably the reason why it I didn't get slammed around much. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, uh, because it, it spun everywhere I went. I was about to say, it's kind of nice. Sometimes ignorance is bliss, and you end up in a better situation because you don't know any better. I could agree with that, yes, sir. So so after that bike, what came next for you? Um, after the bike, you know, sold it to buy my first truck at 15, and then got away from it because I co-opted in high school. Mm-hmm. I would leave at 16 years old. I would leave school at, at noon and go to work until 6, 7, until the job was done. Yeah. That's awesome. That's you know, awesome. and then and then I kind of got away from it all there at a you know a young teenager, completely just working and you know trying to get on my own and everything. Mm-hmm. So now, did you you said you got a truck? Um, did you start building your truck to be you know lifted and big tires that type of thing? I was the exact opposite, brother. I had a lowrider. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, I like it. Oh. Uh, but the uh, you know getting the truck and then driving you kind of move away from that as a yeah unless your family races and you're completely involved all the time because mm-hmm. maybe your dad races or whatever right, right. you know it's more it was more about we were involved in you know construction work and things like that but mm-hmm. you know at eleven I saw an MMI commercial come across 
you know, the TV screen there at Supercross race, and I made my decision then that I wanted to be a motocross mechanic as a kid. There you, you know, go, you know, yeah. Grow up to be a motocross mechanic. Yeah. Um, and I was working towards that goal. Um, and then, you know, just doing kid things, you know, making decisions, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, finally had an opportunity to walk into the Yamaha shop here in, you know, the local town, and uh, they were hiring. Yeah. Uh, and I took that job, and I took a $2 an hour pay cut to mm-hmm. follow my dream. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now there's something to be said, too, for putting something, you know, something that ultimately came to your dream as, as being a mechanic like that, putting it on hold so you could go do construction. Because, you know, I, I think that I, I was very aware as a teenager as well is, you know, you go in, you work, you put the hours in, and eventually it'll pay off and you'll get to where you want to be. Now, you know, whenever you were out there working and you were thinking about, you know, oh, I just want to be a dirt bike mechanic, I just want to be around that the, the environment, all that, you know, what was that one moment that you were like, this is, that's that's my dream. This is how I know I'm going to make it when I go do what? What was it for you? Well, whenever I was, you know, in the high school and college was on the table or, you know, your your career future, my parents always, or my parents would tell me that, you know, being a motorcycle mechanic was a seasonal job. Mm-hmm. They rode street bikes you know, is what they done, Harleys and things like that. And they typically, you know, they rode seasonally. To them, it was a seasonal situation. And so they really wouldn't invest into my future there because they didn't really see the success that was, that could be obtained because mm-hmm. they thought it was a summer job. And then in the wintertime, you're basically going to be starving or looking for work. Yeah, yeah. But, and, and that kind of really, I started, I took it the wrong way. I was very offended because some of my, siblings were in college or had went to college and things like that they really invested into them and then so i kind of got offended and i kind of made my own way but mm-hmm. still working the whole time and then one day i think when i was 19 or 20 my mom came to me after we sit in a class together and she said you know go go do your thing and uh i really think that those words in particular you know I, that's when i got the job at the yamaha shop and things just i, I really want to you know, you know, God really had his hand in where I'm at today, right from the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I'm i a firm believer that, you know, everything is uh, exactly how it's supposed to be, and uh, everything will get done exactly the way it needs to. And I think that that's a great mindset to have. And, you know, you, you mentioned that, that your siblings who were going to college, you know, almost got, you know, seems like they got favorited or had favor in your parents' eyes, um, you know, so I have a degree in uh, software engineering and a computer science degree. I went to college, and and if I could tell you know my children when they come of age, uh, college is not for everyone because you can do anything you want. And sometimes we're seeing nowadays that college just sets you back a little bit further sometimes because uh, people are coming out of school with debt and all this and that. But you know, just to hear that you you went out on a limb and you uh, you, you took the opportunity to be you know, a, a step in the direction of the dream that you always wanted, you know, that's inspiring to so many people because uh, the dream for some people doesn't involve college and um, there's a lot of, you know, there's a negative connotation with that whole idea of not going to college out of high school or not achieving that and things like that and, you know, it, it couldn't be more backwards, you know, 
there's, exactly, I agree. There, you know, so many people, especially nowadays, can make their way and can do anything they want outside of a college degree. So, you know, knowing who you are now, uh, I would say that that definitely was the right decision and definitely paid off for you. But I appreciate that. Yeah, sir. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, so just going on, you know, you, you got that job at, at, at the Yamaha dealership. Uh, what, where did it go from there? How did it spiral into where you are now where you're just, you know, you own your own business and, and, it's, and it's going great for you? So worked at the Yamaha shop for about 18 months. And then when, the, you know, this was kind of a, uh, you know, uh, a reality check because in the winter time they did get slow and I had to go back to construction work for a year. Yeah, <laughs> it, it always hurts. Here we go. So it. point proven, but they never give up. Yeah. And, and but at the at that rate, we built the church and it took exactly twelve months. Like I said, once again, God was involved there. Yeah. Uh, I had a call to be there to build that church, and then so after that twelve months, I went and applied for a job at the Honda dealership, and they accepted. And then, um, so now I'm off back. I took another pay cut, went back, uh, you know, back into the motorcycle industry. Mm -hmm. And uh, I worked there for about a year. But the problem with that is, is you have all these other technicians that you can ask without finding on your own. Mm -hmm. So the, the learning curve inside of a dealership with all of these manuals and all this technology is really slow. Mm-hmm. Well, I worked there for a little while, and then one of the other technicians said, hey, man, I'm going to start my own business. And I think he probably picked me because I was going to be the cheapest labor. Yeah. Um, and he, uh, so I went to work with him in, a, in just, a, uh, just a private setting or public shop, but no dealership. Mm -hmm. No manuals to look into, no other technicians to fall in, you know, fall back on. 100% trial and error learning. Right. And uh, I worked there for about a year and a half, and that was uh, 2002. And then I saved my money. I started buying and selling motorcycles. He let me use his store, his street, his road frontage out there to retail motorcycles. Well, next thing you know, I have five motorcycles and, you know, a couple thousand dollars in the bank, and yeah. I'm ready to make my move. Yeah. Um, I've been working at the house. Uh, I worked at the house, but, you know, Tuesday thursday and friday i didn't have a cell phone or a pager back then i was 100 percent focused on staying right and building a company mm -hmm. um and so i did that you know that particular schedule 70 hours a week for three years or, or no no i'm sorry not three years 18 months Ooh, still. um and then i had my money built up I, at the house was 45 minutes away from my job so mm -hmm. i had my own clientele built yeah and Finally, I had enough money, and I was like, you know, I'm ready to go out, and uh, kind of broke ways with the guy that I was working with, mm -hmm. and, you know, I, I can't lie and say I didn't cry on the way home because I just quit my job. Right, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. stepping 100% out on faith there, you know, with yeah. no money, and, I mean, with no financial backing, just my skill set, my determination, and a couple motorcycles to liquidate his assets and about three thousand dollars cash so. yeah yeah that uh being able to step out on your own uh is one of the most terrifying things and uh i know a lot of people dream about you know that day that they get to own their own business or, or what have you but 
how empowering was it when you started to see that ball rolling? Because you know, when your business starts to pick up, was that a was did that initially just right out of the gate happen, or were there a little bit of dry times? How did it go for you? Well, I haven't had a lot of jobs in my life, mm -hmm. but I have a little bit of common sense. You never want to quit your job until you have another one. That's that's <laughs> it. that's a really good idea for anybody listening. Keep that in mind. <laughs> All right, so don't ever walk out on your boss unless you have another job because finding one may be a little bit longer of a process than the one you just left, you know. Yeah. But the the time that I was there, and I even, I, and as integrity, I told my employer, I said, man, I'm working on things at the house, but it will not interfere with your business, and I will not take anybody from your company, and I'm 45 minutes from the house, and I have a whole other county in the state that I'm dealing with. Mm -hmm. Well, it, so that I was dealing, you know, three hours a night, three nights a week. And then, so I was building a clientele and a name. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so when I stepped out, I'd had a customer that would bring me units and I just moved right into a location. It was a terrible location, but <laughs> I had probably five or six units to work on yeah. when I walked out. Hmm. So. Hmm. Well, that's good. So you, so you, so you had the ball rolling just a little bit there. Um, I did. I had the sales ball. I had the retail ball. You know, I had you know the the service thing going. Yeah. But to still walk out and be like, "Hey, man, I just bought a six hundred dollar computer." <laughs> <laughs> there goes about a quarter of my income. Yeah, uh, my yeah, savings. <laughs> yeah. No, I I completely understand. Uh, I actually at one point started my own. Uh, it was a it was a software company that ended up not taking off like I had hoped. So, um, you know, I eventually had to go back to the the corporate workforce, and uh, I know how good it feels and how hard it is. And uh, you know, it's for you. You know, it seems like it continued, but uh, just how hard it is for those who do choose to go out on their own, and then eventually just have to make the wise decision to, you know you never give up on your dreams but sometimes it's alright to put them on the shelf away for a little while and That's exactly uh, right yes sir and uh, you know it, it's a great feeling to have your own and be your own boss and you know if there's anything that comes from this podcast already I hope that it's people get a little bit more motivation to step out and, and continue to pursue their dreams of working for themselves because that's the best time I've had in my life without a doubt in regards to work but yeah, just don't step off into the UTV industry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I coach you to do that now, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, don't don't do that. That's uh, no, that's kidding. that's pretty funny though. Uh, so <laughs> speaking of UTVs, at, at what point did you transition from you know uh, having your bike shop to the UTV world? You know, did you have an 800 when they first came out, or when did you jump into the game? Oh man, uh, oh wait, a friend of mine is an entrepreneur just like myself. Um, this guy, there was a doctor in town that bought the very first red RZR 800. Yeah. And, uh, I, I remember seeing it in the yard there at the Yamaha dealer, Polaris dealer. And I was like, wow, uh, I'm driving a 95 Ford Ranger at this time. Uh -huh. And, uh, it wouldn't even, I couldn't even haul it probably. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> this thing goes off the, the shelf and then. Yeah. Next thing you know, a, a good friend of mine, uh, one of my mentors, uh, shows up with a green uh, 08 800, and then he's blowing through money, and he's got two red 08 800s. Oh, you know, man. So now he's got a fleet of three. Yeah. And 
after you know so many miles they start coming apart yeah and and i think one of his daughters grew up and lost interest and i ended up with one of the the very first 08800 that came to town that the doctor ball i ended up with it that's amazing that's so amazing. at that right there we're in the utv game now so. yeah so did you just start with you know uh repairs or did you start carrying parts? I mean, at that in 08, there's no parts for them. You basically go out and you have to deal with Polaris and go from there. Uh, you know, when when the 800 hit and you got yours, did you was it something that you just did you see the future that the market was going to be? How did it go for you? I didn't see the market there because they were so expensive. You know, in 08, the four wheelers were starting to get really expensive. Right. Um, and then 09 is when I bought that unit from him and it was half worn out. Um, and then I went out in 45 minutes without checking the oil cause it was nearly a brand new unit, mm -hmm. you know, at that rate. And man, I blew the motor up. In 45 <laughs> minutes? In 45 Woo! minutes it ran low of oil and I smoked <laughs> the motor and it cost me another $1,500. I was going to say, so. do you drive that hard or was it just ragged out No, a bit? it was just low of oil. It was burnt. I mean, who would have thought that... And 08 would have been worn out at that rate. Yeah, no 500 kidding. miles on the clock. Wow. Wow. So did you, uh, you know, obviously the 900 comes out and then the 900 XP. Were you, did you have one of each model? Was this something where you're, you know, it just kind of accumulated over time? Or, you know, did you start dealing with them more, riding it more, and got more interested in them? How did the progression go? Well, in 08, I had, or 09, I had that, that unit there. And the guy that I bought it from, we had kind of a, falling out a little bit and mm -hmm. you know he was the guy that everybody rode with mm -hmm. so i kind of got out of it actually until like 14 really that's you a know, long there time was about three or four years that i would work on them yeah but i wouldn't ride them hmm. um i was into rock crawling at that rate which is a blessing because i've got i've learned some skill there you know yeah in the rock crawling so instead of riding razors i was into uh, low gear rock crawling at that, you know, during that time because I didn't want to hang out with that guy. Yeah, uh, we're over it now. Like I said, he's one of my mentors. Mm -hmm. But so I got out of the razor industry and went into the rock crawler thing. So what kind you of know, they don't really mix? So. Yeah, no, they definitely don't. I'll tell you. Uh, what uh, what kind of rig did you have for when you were rock crawling? My first truck ever that uh, my stepdad gave to me was a Ford Bronco, an early '73 nice. model. Yeah. Um, and I, I still have a place in my heart for that particular body style. Yeah, I believe it. Those um, are just pretty trucks. Yeah, and I bought a 77, and I put tons, uh, low MP431 transmission, or 435 transmission, and uh, we took off to the rocks, me and my wife, at that rate. So. Yeah, yeah. Now, did you guys mostly go local, like around parks near you? Did you guys ever go out west and do like the Rubicon or anything like that? Whenever we went out west, we uh, we would go local, 250 miles away. Like we went to land between the lakes. Uh, we would go to Wind Rock. Um, we would go to Gray Rock. You know, just within a couple hours driving distance. Which at the time that was you know far for me. You know, yeah. To now, so. Yeah. Well, I mean that's still that's a that's definitely a drive to go ride. And then you know, in a full size unit, I feel like I used to build jeeps and. Or, you know, I had a Jeep and I actually had three or four of them. And my last one had the Evo uh, Off-Road Evolution spec King Coilovers on it, the whole nine yards. And 
I just couldn't stop breaking stuff, <laughs> and I got so pissed that uh, yeah. I got so pissed I sold it, bought me a truck, and then got me a razor. But um, you know, going from that rock crawler back into the side by side world, uh, did you ever do any competition rock crawling or race rock crawling races in, in the, those vehicles a full size? I didn't, man. But I had a truck. I had that thing built. Yeah perfect it would never break and it done everything that i ever pointed it at that's awesome it got to the point to where it wasn't built good enough before we were about to get hurt yeah and then i just got out of it there and then got back into the to the utvs because i didn't want to spend a, mo- a lot of money on it right i could just buy one mm-hmm. uh and another funny thing is is the shop door that i'm at now and mm-hmm. i've been there for 12 years mm-hmm. it's only six foot seven foot wide and i can't every time i have to work on a full-size unit i'm, uh-huh. I'm out in the weather yeah yeah that's, that's awful. so i told my wife i said look this thing's bad to the bone it does not break it does what we want but if we continue to get more aggressive i feel like that we're going to get hurt mm-hmm. and so i parked it you know to restore it uh and then somebody come along and offered me you know some money for it and i just rolled it on out because i was back in the utv game at that point yeah so you said that's about 2014 that you came back to the utvs yes sir what what was your first utv when you came back or did you still have the 800 or was it long gone oh no it was long gone good (laughs) that thing actually has came back to me really like three other times yes uh another guy a friend of mine bought it and i think i rebuilt the motor rebuilt the transmission Man, it was, that thing was the very first 800 in town. That's awesome. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But it had a lot of work done to it. It's, it's pretty wild. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing, though, that it just is, it stayed around that long. Yeah, I'm hoping it's gone now, actually. <laughs> <laughs> It'll come back and haunt you. Don't worry. After this, somebody it will hear it and they'll will. bring it back to you. But, if it does, I may just buy it back now. So. There you go. Never hurts to have another machine. So, yeah. you came back, uh, what machine did you get when you came back? Because the 800's gone, the full size is parked, what did you come back to? In 14, um, I was trying to get back into retail, large unit retail, uh, you know, sales, and uh, I, I got got on to co-parts, and I tried to move some units there, uh-huh. um, and then I started, I bought a couple units that I didn't know that there were things wrong with them, because co-parts, I wasn't there, I was buying them by picture yeah and i'm not a dishonest individual I, I i don't lie and then buying something that i didn't know and then having to market it to the customer right i just i did it i did two units like that on the same buy and then i just didn't feel comfortable about it anymore yeah no, so I we that. moved a couple units those units have been great for those customers but a friend of mine across the street uh in another business had bought a 14 xp 1000 mm-hmm. the black pearl edition yep and uh, man, that one thousand was a, a kind of a wake up call to a lot of people because they would go out and run it like a four wheeler, and they would be upside down or hurt or sliding down the asphalt or flipping across the yard because mm-hmm. the power to weight ratio. A lot of people weren't ready for that. Yeah, I agree. So he goes out one Friday night and he slides it down the highway, you know, and he comes back. He goes, "Hey, man, I don't." And uh, I've got pictures of that on my social media. I bought it, really good deal. Mm-hmm. Drove it probably five minutes around my shop, and yeah. then I put it back up for sale and made a couple of dollars off of it. <laughs> there you yep. go. 
Oh yeah. gosh, that's awesome. So when what, what's the machine you actually ended up keeping, or you know, because that's 2014. Um, really, that's not too long ago. So I took that little bit of profit, went and bought a white Lightning 14 model. Okay. And uh, and that's when I was off to the races then. Okay. Um, that that the white Lightning 14 is the one that hung around for a while. Yeah. So what uh, what what was the first race series that you came out and raced in? Man, the very first event uh, was down at Chocolock, and it was the straight up side by side series. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what what uh what what are the hills that they used to race uh, at that park? Um, man, I don't I don't I never I don't get into the names. Mm-hmm. No, that's fine. <laughs> and even at King of the Hammers, if you ask me what course this is, I just say, uh oh, another one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I don't get into the names, but yeah. they were a minute and a half short course. Okay. Uh, timed events, so. Okay. You know, it was cool. But at that point, man, I was, it was over with. It was over with. Yeah. So it seems that, you know, I'm just looking at your social media over time and whatnot. Um, you definitely prefer the endurance racing versus the hill climbing. Is that correct? Uh, it is. Man, I, I, you know, I don't have, I'm successful now, but financially back in 14 for me to buy that car, um, that, Polaris Razor there was was a stroke, yeah, you know. Sure. Um, and then to go out and buy a buggy or have a buggy built, you know, that was a stroke. Mm-hmm. And so I just I dealt with what I had to deal with back. You know, I can't say back it wasn't that long ago. So you know, I, I was just doing what I could to have a good time and race. So. Yeah, yeah. No, I I completely understand. And you know, I think we've talked about it before on the podcast that. Um, for you to go hill climb, it's a huge investment because, like you said, you got to get you know a, a, a chassis. A, you basically have to build the thing bomb proof, and the endurance racing, you know, it's not much easier on parts, but it's a little easier to hold your machine together in the grand scheme of things. You know, if you take a tumble on the endurance course, you know, worst case scenario, you break an a arm or something like that tie rod you know you know rarely something worse than that but you know you go tumbling down a hill in a in a hill climb event and it could be your entire machine is totaled yeah you can total a machine either way you know so i want to i want to tell you that yeah but back then you could run a minute and a half short course Mm -hmm. and not total your machine maybe break an axle or two right or front dip or whatever and the transmission starts coming apart but you know, with the hill climbing, you know, you take one bad tumble, man, and you're, you know, you're totaled. Yeah, yeah. So, and and I never had the money. I needed to go ride after the event, mm-hmm. and then ride the next weekend. Yeah. So I never done the. I never really got into the bounty hill thing. So you got into the short course stuff. Uh, you know, what what came first for you? Did you get another razor, or did you get more serious and start entering different events? How, how did that progression go for you? I think I just worked harder and made a little bit more money to where I could add more parts. So I would rather run short course because I like motocross racing and I like flying that car through there, you know, at 50 to 110 feet. And that's more of my thing rather than racing a clock back then. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I'd say, especially down here in the south, you know, endurance racing is getting a lot more prevalent, but we don't have too many tracks or too many places where you can go and just run your rig and just go air it out and have that experience. I know a lot of guys, you know, <laughs> a lot of guys have never jumped their rig like that, got a chance to run it on a course, or even if they have jumped their rig before, I'm sure they've, you know, snapped an axle. I know the first time I aired out my buggy at uh, Adventure Off-Road Park, I ended up coming back with two snapped axles just because, uh, you know, I was I was nervous about flipping over and making sure I was level, but ended up landing with my foot on the gas and, you know, say goodbye to my rear two axles. Right, landing so, on the throttle. Yeah, you, <laughs> you bet. I hit a little harder than I thought I was going to as well. But, uh, yeah, so, you know, moving on from, from the straight-up side-by-side series, what uh, tell me about, like, your rig that you were racing, you know, were there anything, was there anything that just, you know, immediately broke, immediately stood out? Uh, what was the inconvenient thing to fix? You know, what did you, what did you run into when you were racing about your machine? Once again, we were, so we went to an SRS event at Stony Lonesome, and I was trying to climb, I was climbing the hill, and I flipped over on its side, and I made a couple more throttle notions than I should have, just kind of like entertaining the crowd. Right. Little did I know that, once again, the oil came off the oil pump, and the motor <laughs> ran dry probably 15 seconds. Ooh. <laughs> you know, I mean, minimal amount of time. Yeah. I was just hitting the throttle, because I had a, a nice throttle uh, uh, exhaust system on there. Yeah. And uh, they flipped me back over, and I rode the rest of the night there. And then I come to a short course race at Stony, and... During practice, the crank came apart Yeesh. in the XP 1000. Now that's that's not. I mean, that's that's the center. That's literally the center of the motor. You know, <laughs> what? How do you even? How, how did you? When you looked back at it and you saw that your engine was just just trashed, what's the first thing that goes through your head? I don't have the money to fix it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one right there. I, I'd say that that's, uh, that's probably the most common one. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have the money to fix it. So, but we made it happen, and we built it better. We, so we, we were probably one of the first ones to have a, uh, a big bore motor and mm -hmm. cams and ports and things like that uh, in that motor. So for for you, those upgrades were, you know, well, let me roll it back a little bit. The, that big cam and that big bore that you guys did to that engine, um, how, you know, compared to stock, how how much was the difference? Was it super noticeable? Was it kind of noticeable? It was a lot more noticeable. Um, I think we probably, I mean, without exaggerating, at least 25 horsepower on yeah. this truck. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. I bet you, so... You know, did you really feel it in the top end, or, or was it just faster all the way around? Faster all the way around, and it made a lot more noise. A lot of people could tell that something was going on. Um, cool. And then, you know, we did that, and once again, I'm, I'm trying to get into the short course mm -hmm. as far as open track, side-by-side -side racing. I go out the next event, and I land with my foot on the brake over a double and i backlash the transmission and blow the transmission out oh my god man that's just bad luck back to back <laughs> yeah. oh man yeah 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 so, so and then i'm like oh how where am i going to get the money to fix this yeah yeah so so let's see so in that first the first break you had was the cam and then you broke the transmission you know, w would you say that those were the components that you found failing you, you know, more than anything? Did you end up fighting those for a long time? 
Well, the motor was my fault because I didn't check the oil. Okay. Uh, after rolling it a sure. couple times, and then the transmission, man, we do probably three transmissions a month because of that forty-five on forty-five pinion mesh. Yeah. It just won't break. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's it's a good design. It it works, but and it really is a bad design as far as trying to unmesh, and it just goes right out the side of the case. Yeah, well, I, I've seen it more, you know, I've seen it all the time, really. You know, we'll go out riding, yeah, and, uh, cases break, and pinions, and the output shaft breaks, everything. I mean, I've seen every part of that whole thing blown apart. Um, but for, I would say, the other 75% of people, they seem to hold up pretty good. But, uh, you yes, know, yeah, 75%, yeah. You, you, you get into that racing, um, when did it go from, kind of having issues and, and kind of the mindset of like, oh, I don't know when I'm going to be able to, you know, fix this or this or that or two, you know, now you have a full-fledged race team that, you know, you mentioned you're going out west, you've got a car out west and you've got a car here in the east, you know, when did that jump happen for you and what was the difference, you know, what what made that jump happen? Uh, I mean... Going back to breakage and things like that, that same 14 white lightning, at this rate, I've already had, I, after that breakage, I fixed it, upgraded, and then I wrapped the car, and then I put Razor Aid on the side of it, you know, and that's, and we had a really sharp looking car. Yeah. A really fast car, now the transmission is built, and um, I went to another race, got excited about it, man, and, and was come, I came out and was leading that main event with one of the fastest guys in the southeast behind me, trailing me. Yeah. And, uh, man, went over another jump and broke the transmission again. Again. <laughs> <You know? laughs> again. And, uh, and he was right on me, and I, the, I was racing as hard as I could. I didn't care what happened. I was in the moment. I was in the lead. And then all of a sudden, the, the car bound up and stopped, and he slammed right in my back bumper. Yeah. And then third place came around, and he won the event. They thought it, it, it shut down so fast that they thought that I'd brake check the guy. And I'm like, man, I'm leading. Why would I ever be on the brakes? Yeah, you know? absolutely. It's just the outside looking in. And then after that thing, I had the thing wrapped. You know, beautiful car, team ready. Uh, man, I went out and bought a brand new 17 Turbo. Yeah, uh, there you go. Right after that. Made the jump, didn't you? <laughs> well, I saw the 17 Turbo outrun the 16 uh -huh. so bad that day that I was like, man, I got to go get the, that thing there because my car, naturally aspirated, would run with a 16 Turbo, mm -hmm. you know, with a tune. But yeah. then the 17 came out and it was just off to, you know, lights out. Now, faster. what did they do between 16 and 17 Turbo that made that big a difference? Because I actually had a 16 Turbo and... That's my only experience in the turbo, and, and exactly what you just said. You know, I kind of I went from a turbo to a 1000 uh, Razor buggy to now I'm in a 1000 full body, and I wasn't really. I mean, there was some difference, but I didn't really think there was that much difference between the turbo and the actual 1000. They dropped, I mean, uh, they added more compression mm -hmm. uh, to the motor, um, they cammed it differently, and then they added more gear to the transmission. Okay. That's good. So, to know. And I think it made. I think they tuned it differently, and I, I, almost. I'm not 100 percent positive, but I'm thinking it was pushing 20 more horsepower straight out of the box. Lord, man, yeah. that's a, that is a that's that's again that's a super noticeable difference there. That's it interesting. Is, yes, sir. Yeah. 
so you get the turbo and you get your 1000 set up, you know, you have, now you had both rigs at the same time, correct? Man, I put that 1000, it was on jack stand for about a year and a half, oh, you yeah. know, me wanting to fix it, but I was already, at this rate, we're trying to build an Ultra 4 car that'll, that'll last with a 17 turbo. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you kind of, you shift the focus from that 1000 all the way over to this turbo, uh, you know. How, did you guys, you have a blank platform, it's brand new. How did you guys go about building it? What was step one for you guys? Step one was getting that brand new wrap off that broken car <laughs> <laughs> and transferring all of the vinyl and the plastics over, thank goodness. That's one good thing about a Polaris is a lot of the components swap out from year to year, man. Yeah. And if you've got the great components like special carriers manufacturing suspension mm -hmm. you know and then the rhino 2.0 axles and stuff like that then you can move it from car to car yeah and for me once again working on a budget i didn't have to buy things every year because i made that initial and it would just go right from the 1000 to the turbo and then we're off to the races again right right uh so just changing out the vinyl or the plastics over to that and then changing out the suspension in the cage and everything just moved right over um you know we're ready to race again on the turbo all right well, well you know you got the rig race ready where where's the first place you took it and and before we ask that uh what year is this by the time you get this turbo set up is it 2017 16 where are we at this is 2017 yes, okay sir. so you're in 2017 you just got your new turbo all put together um where are you going how does it start for you uh, man a friend of mine bill hilliard called me and he said hey i'm going to run gncc i'm like all right and i'm having conflict i'm as far as my i've got a newborn son here and i'm like man i just cannot leave with this shorter notice right so i start looking and ultra four has been on my mind just a little bit not that i didn't even know about it much and i said look man i'm not going to be able to go to this race with you because you, he needs a co-dog so he couldn't go without me mm -hmm. i said i'm not going to go here but in three weeks we can go to um oklahoma and race and this will be the first round of the ultra four and then we can finish the whole season and you don't have to have a co-driver so we can both race oh. <laughs> i don't know how i would have done as a co-driver but I'm, I'm, <laughs> one day i'm gonna have to suck it up and get it done because i've had a lot of guys sacrifice to do it for me but but uh anyway and and he agreed to it, and next thing you know, man, we're traveling 12 hours, which is the longest trip I've ever made to, to race. Man, that's, that's uh, a long time. And then time. That's, our, that's our Ultra 4 uh, first race right there. It was back in 2017 in Oklahoma. So in 2017, you went to Oklahoma to race the Ultra 4. Um, I actually interviewed another Ultra 4 side-by-side -side driver, and he mentioned that Oklahoma, it may have been in 2017, that was his least favorite race he's ever raced. Uh, was that the year that it was just full of mud? Man, yeah. I, I, what, I'm just a guy from Alabama, and I pull up. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. And uh, so, dude, there was like tornadoes, which from yep. Alabama, that is a serious thing. I pull into the hotel, and I'm like, where's the storm shelter? Yeah. And, you know, uh, <laughs> Mr. Patel probably said right there under the staircase. I'm yeah. like, really? Yeah. Man, it is psycho weather, and uh, so automatically, it's right where anxiety is high, and it rained like five inches the night before Lord the race. Help. 
So it's raining like that, you know, your machine's prepped and you guys show up at the park the next day. When you get that first look at the race course and you realize, you know, it's going to be just a slop fest, what, what goes through your mind? I mean, is it like, what do you guys think? How do, do you guys change anything in preparation? Uh, no, we didn't have anything to change. I mean, when we first pulled up to race, the creek getting into the park was overflowing. <laughs> so everybody that didn't stay on site uh -huh. was stuck on this side of the creek. Oh, my gosh. I'm the first one to the, to the creek, and then all the other, even the officials, pull up. And I'm sitting there with my window down and, uh, you know, almost about to go back to sleep because we're stuck. And then... Mm -hmm. Dave Cole, Ultra 4, you know, lead man there, walks up, and I don't know who he is. And uh, so I'm, they're all talking and this and that and, you know, just whatever. And I'm sitting there with my window down. I'm the first one to the creek, and they're like, I said, man, they're not going to start with Matt without me, are they? You know, because I, I drove 12 hours to race, and I didn't know who I was talking to. I was right. talking to Dave Cole. Yeah. <laughs> and he goes, of course, Dave Cole Fashion, I hope if you listen to this, he knows exactly what I'm talking about. He goes, what do you mean, where are they going to start without you? I'm like, uh, do you, you don't think the promoter's going to start without me, do you? I'm like, he's like, no, I don't think so, because I'm standing right here. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> I said, what's your name? He goes, I'm Dave Cole. I'm like, well, I'm Dustin Robbins. I'm, you know, I didn't know. I, once again, man, I'm just a boy from Alabama, and it was ultra four racing. I yeah. wouldn't have done anybody who's who or anything like that. Still, I'm not, but. It was kind of funny. Yeah, <laughs> you know, no, that's everybody a... looked at me like you don't know who he is. I'm like, oh, no, I don't know. I don't. And then uh, another guy was walking back and forth across the creek, and I said, "Look, man, I'm from Alabama. I stuck it in full wheel low and crossed the creek first. Lord <laughs> <know>? help. <laughs> and it really wasn't that bad. Man, I guess they just didn't want to deal with it. So I crossed the creek and I go over and take a 30 minute nap while they do a detour. Oh my gosh. That's crazy, man. That's yeah, crazy. Was funny. So I, I'm sure that that made a lasting impression on Dave. Uh, so I'm sure that he's now, he's now got your face and your name pretty well recognized. <laughs> but, uh, I think so, yeah. yeah. So, so you guys, you, you know, you, you take your nap and you guys are getting ready to race. You guys are getting out there. Uh, you know, after that race, during that race, you know, where did you guys finish? How did you guys place? Because I feel like the first race that people do is always so important. It sets the tone for their entire career, really. So, getting ready to race, I thought Ultra 4 was like Ultra 4 hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm ready to race all day. Yeah. But that course, wet, is just it's a learning curve and I don't even give any of the secrets out because I've already raced it two times and right. everybody kind of learned last year. I, they were making mistakes weird right. that I made the first year and I was like, well, I knew it, but I couldn't tell you because yeah, yeah. I'm here to win. Yeah, no, hey, absolutely. But that first race, I had a full gear bag. I had an air compressor, tire plugs, spare tire, things like that. Mm -hmm. And it was a three-lap event and then on the third lap, I was in second or third and i had a flat tire and i was probably two miles from the from the finish line and i was like man you know this would be the time i'm not winning to jump out and repair the car you know just to go through the race pace of what's coming next race right well i jumped out i tried to plug the tire none of that worked you know but i was in and out of the car and i realized at that point a lot of time is getting back into the car and getting strapped in so you yeah. got to really consider 
how you're being how you're penalizing yourself on time to repair a minute situation. Yeah, absolutely. Or can you push it to the end and keep the car together and finish the race? So it was a learning curve that time. Yeah. So you know, okay, you get out of the car, you realize you have this learning experience. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty. If you only had two miles to go, do you think that if you were in that position now, that you would have just hammered down and finished two miles with a flat tire? It wouldn't have mattered anyway. Uh, I'm glad that I realized that it wasn't that big of a deal. Yeah. I yeah. still finished the race. I still finished in the position that I'd gotten out of the car in and back in. I was passed one time by my teammate, Bill, was yeah. there racing with me. Yeah. But he had made a mistake on course, and it penalized him one position. Mm. Uh, so I would have lost the position, but I still was in the same spot, and it gave me the opportunity to jump out and see kind of like what needed to be done and how quick of a pace as a mechanic I could accomplish it. Yeah. Mm. Man. Well, that's, that's, that's always good experience to have, and that's good experience to, to kind of get your mindset straight. Um, because especially in King of Hammers, you know, those really long races – uh, being able to practice working on your rig under pressure is huge, because um, you know. And that's exactly what I was going for that day. Just being under pressure, full race pace, trying to finish, trying to you know be competitive. Mm-hmm. I wanted to get out, make sure I had everything lined out, because I'd already I wasn't in first place. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know what place I was in, uh, but I just wanted to get out and see how I could handle the pressure, man. And that, that like you said, that's very important during when the adrenaline's pumping. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I know I know. if you're ever under any pressure, it seems like you can't get the tool to fit right and you get frustrated and it just blows up into something crazy. But uh, So you guys go to Oklahoma, um, and this is, this is 2017 still, correct? Correct, yes, sir. So where did you guys finish in 2017 year? How, how'd that go for you? What would you learn, uh, you know, just in general? How would you guys close out that season? Um, we... Uh, so I went. The next race was Badlands, Indiana, mm-hmm. uh, in Attica, and we. I kind of learned that you know, um, the course it was kind of ill marked, and there were some things that got turned around backwards on it. Me and another uh, competitor ended up hitting head on at like fifty five and fifty five. So was that it? was a pretty traumatic experience on my yeah. second go around. Was everybody okay? Everybody was okay. Uh, we had full safety gear on, Hans devices and things like that. I hit so hard that my tongue came out of my mouth and hit my teeth and busted my tongue. That's the only thing Ooh. that wasn't strapped in. Man, that's crazy. How, <laughs> so that was a wild impact. Yeah, how was the machine? It, uh, two machines were total. Wow. Total. Wow. Absolute losses. So. Wow. So, you, so did that end the season for you there, or were you able to get another unit and get going again? Man, I tell you, it really ended the season for me to be competitive because now I'm really checking course markers and things like that to where I've got it in the back of my head. If I come around, now I don't feel like I'm racing on a one track. Right. Um, So we move on from Attica, Indiana to Kentucky at Bedford at uh, Dirty Turtle. Uh, We had a really competitive car um, and we were doing really well that that day and i had a belt break Mm. Uh, we kind of did something wrong on trying to keep the belt cool Mm -hmm. and we ended up clogging it up and then last lap you know we were probably running top five and the belt snapped man that's heartbreaking yeah 
That's heartbreaking. So 2017, uh, you know, where'd you guys finish on that Ultra Four season? I didn't even pay attention to the points there because mm-hmm. I knew that it was kind of off. Sure. And I'll be honest with you, up until now, man, I've always just raced for the experience and the fun. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, great. I've always, I may settle for third place because I know I'm going to podium, you know, in the past. Yeah. Uh, but I do have a lot of new, you know, breaking news this year is we're going for the, you know, first place. I'm tired of these number threes being on my shelf. <laughs> Woo, boy, that's what I like to hear. <laughs> Get rowdy with it this yeah. year. We're going. We're either making or breaking. Finishing is not in the question unless it's first. There you go. I let, now that that kind of competitive spirit's how you end up on the top too. So let's go ahead Man, and jump I, into it. Uh, go ahead. King of Hammers. How'd it go? Tell me about it. I, I you know, it's actually funny. Before you get started. Um, I have a picture uh, from someone I found. I don't know. It was one of the uh, media outlets, and um, I was sitting at my desk today in my office, and little did I know, I have a picture of two razors going through what looks like a uh, sledgehammer or one of the trails out there, and uh, surely enough, it's your rig. <laughs> and uh, I, I just laughed to myself because I was like, that's that's, uh, that's pretty funny. He's been on my background since King of Hammers, and uh, you know, wouldn't even have thought about it until I started reading the panels. So, how did King of Hammers go for you? Man, it re- went really well. Um, so, at this rate, we've got a little bit of coin. You know, we're, we're I've got a couple businesses. You know, just continually, the, I've never had anything given to me, and and so now we're we've got my wife is on board because now the UTV industry is starting to kind of pay off a little bit because yeah. of the all things and the razor aid thing and all that. Um, and then me and uh, number 211, Michael Lee, uh, MRT driver, we, we flew out, and or I drove out, he flew out, and we did some pre-running back at the first of the year mm-hmm. just to go out there and learn how to go fast. I mean, the guys that win this race, uh, it's in their backyard. Yeah. There's nothing for them to load up on a, you know, 15-foot trailer and go do the course every weekend if they want. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, so Michael and I, we went out there, and I just wanted to, you know, get used to going fast in the whoop section, and I'm pretty good in the rocks outside of being in outer limits. Yeah. Uh, so we just get the car tuned and ready. The car's built. Our entire program is out west. All we got to do is fly back. Well, so we come back, and we, cont- man, we work on the car. One of the other promoters come up, and he's like, man, are you done yet? Because it was 15 minutes before we left the line. I'm still over there running zip ties and things like that. I, <laughs> the the, the like, finishing I touches. He, I, I, know, I know he's making fun of me, man. But I, as a mechanic, this thing's got to be perfect right. for what I'm about to do with it. Right. You know? Right. So you guys are 15 minutes before you start King of Hammers. Uh, you guys, obviously, you make it out on the line. Um, tell us about it because, you know, We've heard, if, if, for those who listen to the podcast regularly, we've heard about the desert section being something that's totally new for the guys out east. And like you just said, learning how to go fast is such a big, you know, it's just such a big change from what we have out here out in the east. And, uh, you know, how did that first lap go, that second lap, and then eventually the, the lap that ends you in the, in the big giant rocks? Um, everything went well because, like I said, we had a little bit of training between Michael and I. Um, you know, going fast, mm-hmm. and then knowing what I was looking for in my suspension, we already had all of that stuff um, in the bag. Um, so the first lap, 
I mean, I think we went from qualifying is what killed me. So we did decently well in Ultra 4 in 2018. We finished top three uh, on the East Coast. Very nice. And uh, we walked out in 23rd. I say we walked out. We didn't finish. We were in 23rd position when we timed out mm-hmm. from King of Hammers on our first attempt. So I'm pretty, I'm, I'm pretty confident. And I walked away that day on the way back to the airport. I made 10 notes that I needed to do different for 20, 2018 mm-hmm. or 2019. And so it was a very small scale of what we had to do different compared to 2017 or let's see, 20, you know, 2018 to 2019. Right. So 2019, 10 things we had to do different. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was very simple. And that was, you know, just those 10 things. And one of them was to go pre-run. So we learned how to go fast and have that suspension dialed and tuned when we showed back up for the race. So lap one was really, really, uh, you know, it was pretty easy. I mean, just go and keep the car together. Right, right. That's uh, that's one thing that I, I feel like is uh, is just it's so hard for guys out east. You really got to get out there and just get it done because you're exactly right. The guys that live there, they do have such a strong home field advantage because it's you know, like you exactly said, it's nothing for them to go load up and go run the desert or run the rock section just any any weekend. It's a it's so it, but it's so different than what we have here in the east. Um, that really, you know, from what I've heard, you just got to get out there and experience it for yourself. It's very fast. Yeah, I'm sure. It's so a lot what, faster than anything we could ever deal with around here. What, uh, what, how fast are you averaging out there? You know, when you look down the speedometer and you're like, uh, we're moving, how fast are you going? Well, as a manager, I want to, you know, I set the pace with the, the co-driver and mm-hmm. I say, look, man, we're going to, we're going to run 75 miles an hour. Woo, man. You know, and that's it, which is. You know, that's a, that's a pace there. And the cool thing about it is going right out into the lake bed at first. Yeah. Um, a car came around me, and we were running 70, Man. and he was running 80. And he made it. We saw smoke blow out of his, uh, his clutch cover. Yeah. And we could smell rubber burning. And he went probably another 50 yards, and he was pulling off the course. Man. So automatically, I was like, man, you know that, you know, my co-driver and I, I that's what happens right there. So just do what we're, we had discussed to do, and we'll make it to the end. Man, that's – I mean, going 70, 75 in a Razor, you know, I definitely know they're capable of doing it, but that is just – that's so fast. That is so fast, and you're exactly right. I mean, I don't know of anywhere out here where I would feel comfortable going 70 miles an hour in my Razor. That's crazy. <laughs> well, it looks like it's about 15 miles, but it's probably only about three or four at that rate. But yeah, you know, and it's another thing. It's just like muscle memory. Yeah, that's you know true. I mean, well. once you do it and you live out there, or you go practice doing it. Yeah. You know, my motto last year was a Sunday drive, and you know, in 18, in 19, I told my motto this year, and this is what I repeat back to myself in a long race: is this is another day at the office because I've already been here. Yeah. You know, and it was another day at the office, so running 75 and maybe bumping 80 was just, you know, something that we've already been accustomed to doing. You know, mm-hmm. here we are. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you, you get in the desert, uh, you, you, you're successful there, you get into the next two and three laps. How'd the rest of the race go for you? Uh, so we I really enjoy not utilizing my pit because that means I've done my job yeah. as a mechanic. We've all done our job. 
I've done my job as a survival driver, keeping the car together. So I always like it when they're out there waving their hand, hey, we're right here, and I just keep on driving like, you know, hey, what's up, buddy? It's kind of funny. They all get a kick out of that. So we, we did not take fuel. Okay. Uh, coming back through uh, remote pit one. Okay. And they're, they're at this rate, they're like, hey, man, you said you were taking fuel, but I had a special kind of gauge in my car, and it, we had it calculated that one mile meant a certain meaning, and it was dead on. Yeah. Um, so we made it all the way back through lap one on a factory tank, no adder, no nothing, Oof. all the way back to main pit. Man, that's a that's a how many miles is how many miles is that first lap? Uh, the first lap I think was man was it sixty three or eighty three or that's something crazy. Like that? I mean, eighty three even... miles. That's that's just unheard of. That's uh, it's mind blowing to think that you cover that and you know, let alone the stock gas tank, but just that you're covering that so quickly as well. That's mind blowing. Absolutely. So we had an advantage there. I mean, not utilizing the pit. Now I had to back off on the last five miles because every time that we would take a sharp right hand turn, and this comes from my short course days. Mm-hmm. Short course, I would want to run a light car with minimal amount of fuel. Right. Well, a couple times that had bit me in the side there because the fuel would run off the fuel pump on a right-hand turn. Okay. And the car would blip. Uh So on the way back, my co-driver was unaware that I knew this, but we would take a right-hand turn and it would bob, bop, 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 bop. And then we would come out the right, you know, hill climb, downhill, whatever. Yeah. So I would hit that with probably 30, 40% more throttle, and we would make it out the other side all the way to the finish line. We were on zero. That's crazy. On the first lap. That's crazy. Yeah, as well. <laughs> I bet. So, so you pull into that, that pit uh, coming around for lap number two. Um, did they have to do anything else other than fill you up with fuel? Nothing else. They, uh, they filled me up with fuel. My gas jugs had a problem, so we had to do some different things. We lost about five minutes refueling the car i didn't spend the money on the high dollar dump cans uh mm-hmm. i didn't think that would make or break a race but there was one valve in there that was causing a problem so mm. that cost me uh probably about five minutes in that pit but those guys did exceptionally well that's good man it's you know it's crazy uh as a driver and a co-driver you really do rely on your pit stops as much as possible in the pit crew um but that's that's pretty that's pretty impressive that you made it back in one uh in one good sweep there so you go out for lap two and three. The lap two has rock sections in it, correct? Correct. So it, 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 if I'm not mistaken, lap one is primarily desert. Lap two, you have some desert, some rocks, and then the third lap is primarily the rock sections, correct? Well, in the UTV, we're just running two laps. Okay, so gotcha. lap one is, you know, Cougar Buttes and then desert, and then uh, we go into lap two, which is desert, and then you get into the... Uh, you know, into the other side of Hammertown there, or, mm-hmm. you know, Johnson Valley, which is a lot of rock canyons. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you said you had rock crawling experience. It really, really helps you. Um, when you're in, you know, West Coast rocks, it's, it's a little different than East. So I've, I've, I haven't been out to Johnson Valley before, but uh, just in my experience talking to the other drivers, um, they say it's just not like the East, you know, uh, the rocks that are different and, uh, how, how would you explain that experience going through all those big rock sections? Uh, there, I mean, it's a lot more traction 
there. Uh, so you can flip the car quick. Mm-hmm. Um, or, I mean, it goes really well. And I do, you know, I didn't ever bring this up earlier whenever you asked, but I do have some cross-country motocross um, racing experience. Yeah. So in that, in that right there, you're running 30 miles an hour through a goat trail, and you're constantly, you're on alert nonstop picking that line. Right. You know, they're here. here's a slanted tree laying across the trail. you got to square up on it and all this does rain, whatever. Uh, so I don't have a problem picking lines in the, in the rocks. I'm not at all. So we've got that mastered, but that that confidence kind of kicked me in the rear end this year because I said, man, we didn't have any problem in the rocks until we got to outer limits. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the 30-inch tower tires that we ran in 2018 was my problem there. Mm-hmm. So we've got it mastered now, and I didn't pre-run any of those places. Mm-hmm. Well, little did I know that they are a lot easier for the lead cars because everybody pulls up to the five or ten obstacles in the course and they spin. Well, when they do that, they blow all the dirt out. Yeah, they sure do, don't they? The obstacles become two foot, you know, two feet tall to four feet tall by the, you know, the 20th car that comes through. Yeah, and it's, it's crazy. And that's really a lot of what happened to us. So what ended up happening when you guys get in the rocks? Did y'all just did you find it a little bit harder than you expected? Um, you know, what happened? Well, in the rocks, we caught all the cars that were in front of us. So we started 66 because of poor qualifying. Mm-hmm. Um, it was raining. I made a poor tire choice during qualifying. Um, I geared the car lower for the rocks, and then I geared it even further with smaller tires. Mm-hmm. So the car just hardly would do anything that I wanted it to uh, versus the other higher gear car. Mm-hmm. So we started out 66th place on the day, you know, for the race of King and Hammers. Mm-hmm. We come up to the rocks, and that's when everybody starts getting congested. Right. Well, you know, we make a line choice, and automatically there's 20 cars right in front of us, you know, that are broken or dealing with a you know, obstacle that they couldn't get around. Right. Now, I mean, is that not is that not just so frustrating for you to get stuck like that knowing that you're still in a race? Well, it's frustrating to me because I know I could have qualified better, but I made that choice. Mm-hmm. And once again, man, I'm just an Alabama boy, and I'm happy to be here, so I'm not getting excited. I know that there's still, we're only getting into the hardest part of the race. Right. This is where it's make or break. Right. And it gave me an opportunity to get out and look at the car. I did find one bolt that was broken. So I was able to bypass all the pits and ask for help. And then I was able to catch it right there and get out and fix it myself without losing valuable time. Right, because you're sitting there anyway, so you might as well get out and look at the car. Get out and look at the car. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a, that's a really wise move. So did you guys actually end up making it through the rock sections? How, how did that go for you? Man, we breezed the rock sections, and then we were uh, single track behind about five other cars. Um, they were having a lot harder time than we were because now I'm into my element where I know where to go fast. Mm-hmm. I love charging downhill wide open. I don't have any regard about that. A lot of people <laughs> never get used to doing that. Yeah, that's a tough um, one to get used to. I mean, I just love it. I, I just let the car do what it's going to do. But And then it's hard to get around these guys because they know, they feel like they're, I mean, you know, everybody's as fast as the guy behind them, uh, obviously. Right, right, yeah. (laughs) 
So to get these guys to convince to get out of the way because you're faster, you know, takes a little motivation. And uh, finally, there were some moves that we were able to make. And, and then at that point, I think we were up in the 31st position from 66, like midway, half, la- you know, half lap, you know, second lap. Yeah. That's that's a substantial jump. So did you guys, you know, make up that ground in the rock section only? We made that ground up by, like I said, car management, pit management, um, and, you know, mainly just keeping that pace, man. Like I said, just, you know, another day at the office. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great mindset to have. Um, so, you know, you guys ultimately made it out of the rock section, correct? We did, yeah, about a hair of our, you know. Because <laughs> uh, I so, know. Go ahead. I brought, I brought up Outer Limits earlier, and I will be pre-running that like five times for 2020. Okay. Uh, but... Uh, that thing right there, man, once again, I've told two years in a row when the co-driver gets back in, he and I both are just sitting there apologizing for the way we talk to each other. Because <laughs> you're like, you can't communicate, and it's just, yeah. you know, you want to do this, and that falls apart, you want to do this, it falls apart. And to run that clean and be out in clean air, you know, qualify well, would, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind, I think we probably would have been top ten easy. But. Yeah. Well, I made a joke. I said, brother, the outer limits is the outer limits of mine and your relationship. <laughs> outer limits of my religion, possibly my marriage. Oh, my God. And the uh, outer limits of a lot of things in life. But now that I'm out of it, <laughs> you know, yeah. we can proceed down the road. There. Yeah, absolutely. Y'all can go back to being friends, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, it was bad. It was rough. I'm sure. I know there's times when I got people, my buddies spot me, and I about want to rip their head off whenever it looks like I'm not doing something. And it gets confusing. I can't hear them. They can't hear me. And yep. it's uh, it's pretty easy yes. to get that way. So I definitely understand. So, uh, you know, King of Hammers, where did you guys finish? How did the third lap go for you? Everything, or I'm sorry, not the third lap, but the rest of the race. Did everything go pretty swimmingly and you guys crossed the finish line? Well, second lap, we, uh, once again, we had a mix up with our pit. And they thought that we were out and ready to go mm-hmm. uh, for the remainder of the race. They didn't realize that we came back through remote pit mm-hmm. two and we did mm. and before we headed off into those rock sections i wanted fuel yeah and they were not there <laughs> that's uh that's a little inconvenient <laughs> it is very inconvenient now i probably could ask anybody out there and they probably would have given it to me but i just was kind of mad they went weren't there so we took off into spooners uh and we were so dialed on a fuel percentages on our gauge there that i was like bro we're four percent off finishing this race by gauge oh man and then so and it's all downhill spooners and uh it's not that big of a deal going downhill but then we've got a 20 or 13 miles back to hammertown yeah and uh at that rate man we're both praying and he's like hey go slow down and i'm like well we're in time here and I think I ran 55 miles an hour with the steadiest foot you could ever imagine because yeah. every whoop, you would want to go bop, 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 and I'm just holding it that way, not in and out of the throttle, just trying to conserve as much fuel as possible. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So you guys kept the machine rolling. Uh, you know, Did you end up making it back with, with the limited fuel? We came around the right-hand turn before the finish, and... The car blipped once again, and I knew better. 
So we hit it a little faster than we should have, and uh-huh. we made it through. Thank goodness, and we made it on to the uh, to the checker flag there. And, there you go. Uh, and then uh, I told the guys, I said, "Man, this car's been on zero for probably two miles here, bro." Woo. And everybody was excited, and yeah, you know, and a couple of them said, "Man, let's just push the car across the stage, just you know, for the fun of it, to, you know, whatever." And uh, I was like, "Yeah, whatever, man. I'm tired." Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, that's crazy. That's it's amazing. You know, I I can only imagine the relief that you got whenever that car comes across the finish line, and uh, you know, even even the the team camaraderie to be able to push the push the car up on that uh, up on that big podium behind, in front of the big screen, and uh, just to be there and to finish is an achievement all of its own. Uh, so, did you guys? Did you say you timed out, or did you guys actually end up placing? No, we we placed twenty second place. Twenty second place. So that's amazing. And again, for all my listeners, I say it every time we, I talk to King of Hammers with anybody. Finishing King of Hammers is an achievement on all its own, let alone placing at all. So congratulations, top twenty five, top twenty two, if you want to be specific. But uh, that's incredible, Dustin. That's just that's something that's completely unheard of. Well, it's good, and that's what we were trying to do this year. Um, next year, we have we actually are we've bought the same car that won. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, not the exact same car, but one that is driven by a family member of the person that won. Very nice. Uh, and then this year, so there's going to be a lot less work, uh, and. As far as involvement, and the car will already be out west. There you go. That's a that's to a where great it can setup. be in my backyard now. So the car is going to be in their backyard, but I can go out and fly, fly out, grab the car, go out and practice, and things like that. That's it's almost like King of the Hammers, man. Just consumes your life. Yeah, it sounds like it. everybody I talk to. It sounds like it's uh, for for a short period of the year. It's everything, but. You know, they spend the rest of the year thinking about how they can prepare, and it consumes your mind for sure. Yeah. So you end up finishing King of Hammers. You know, you're headed out uh, very, very soon for another race. Uh, is this your first race after King of the Hammers? It is for me. I've been dealing with a back injury that I've had since I was 19. I've got a pinched nerve in my back. Ooh, that's not good. Um, and I've uh, bypassed surgery, and I've lost. I've been kind of lethargic for the last five years. Yeah. You don't have to really be physically fit to drive a UTV. Uh, but now the physical things have came in. I've gotten a little older, and yeah. uh, it hasn't went away quite as fast as it usually does. So I've lost about 17 pounds. Yeah. Um, been doing some core training. I've always been a weightlifter, but I've not been able to lift weights. So I'm you know, kind of on a little bit more of a stringent uh, exercise program to bypass surgery. Yeah. Because 2019, the sponsors that I have this year, I've got the best sponsors and the biggest sponsor opportunity in my life, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden I'm dealing with this physical ailment. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I don't have any control over it. Yeah. No. It, you know, it's funny. I, that sounds like a, a story that you know. It. I don't want to say it's common, but you know, right when the good stuff hits, you know, you get challenged with something that's uh, going to try and bring you down, but. Uh, I know, you know, when you have faith and you continue to persevere, I mean, you sound like just a, an incredibly hardworking guy and you're not going to let anything stop you. Um, you're just going to come out that much better on the other side. Yeah, and, and you know, once again, like I said, core training, uh, light cardio, mm-hmm. uh, 
weight loss, which, you know, the lighter you are, the faster you are. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, that's a, that's a big thing. <laughs> so we're that, down uh, in weight. Uh, my back is doing better. Warm, t- warm airs here. And, yeah. uh, I, I bypassed the first pro rock race, mm-hmm. let my co-driver drive my unit there. He finished top 10. Very and nice. so we're in the points chase there. I don't have any problem with that. I can't be mad. Yeah. Uh, cause every race is a different race for everybody that's in, you know, top 10 positions. Yeah. Um, and then, so, you know, we were able to pick up that car from the West Coast, and now my we're back right back in the program that I had lined out all the contracts that I signed with my sponsors. You know, I promised them these races out West. Uh, the back issue came into play, but the more I walk and the warmer the temperatures get and the more I work out, the better my back gets. So uh, we leave Saturday uh, the 16th, you know, I said that earlier, right. to go out West for a week of vacation and kind of walking and tourist. That'll, that'll help me even more. Yeah. And then next race for me is March 25th, uh, Metal Club Stampede. There you go. Uh, so, you know, going into that next race, uh, what's on your mind? Is anything particular going through your mind to, about holding your machine together, what you're doing to prepare? You know, what, what's what's going through your head? Well, like I said, I bought that machine. And uh, now I have, we, you know, usually we touch every bolt on every machine that we build and we recipe the build. Yeah. I mean, but this car is an exact replica of what just won the toughest one-day race in the world. It's true. Uh, so I don't have any problem. Of course, we'll do a bolt check and kind of put a little couple things on there that we want to do mm-hmm. that even the other the winners didn't know to do differently. They had a little bit of a problem with King & Hammers, but we didn't have. Um, so we're going to do a couple things to even make it more reliable just with our experience so it'll be even more bulletproof. You know, my mindset going in 2019, man, is uh, I've got a five-year-old son here, and every time I get on the phone with him after a race, mm-hmm. he's like, Daddy, where's the trophy? You know, Ooh. and I've got a couple number threes <laughs> on the shelf, you know, big number threes. And I look even back as a kid uh, in the soapbox derby at Boy Scouts. Man, I got third place back then. Yeah. So I, I was digging through some memorabilia from my childhood, and, you know, even back then I got third place, so I'm kind of mad now. Yeah, well, hey, man, be pissed off and get a reward from it, you know? <laughs> Don't just be mad to be mad. And uh, right. I think there's there's always something good that comes with a little bit of fire under your feet. So uh, I'm definitely fired up this year, bro. That's it's, good. It's, can't say make it or break it, but I'm not settling for just a podium this I like year. it. I love, I actually love to hear that. That makes for, uh, that makes for good, you know, just as being a fan of all the leagues, uh, that makes for good entertainment and that makes for good, uh, you know, I cheer on you guys all the time. So that kind of fire to know that you're pushing just as hard as we want you to win. Uh, you know, I, I, I have good faith that you'll, uh, you'll do everything you need to do. Yeah. And I think I've always settled because I'm always, like I said, once again, I'm just a guy from Alabama. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like it's just a blessing to be even in the top. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like, man, what? It's just a thrill to be even at this point or with these cars or with these guys or with these sponsors and with this team. And I made the decision after I lost the championship, East Coast Championship, I was very humble. I lost, I was 45 points in the league going into Bedford, Kentucky last year in the Ultra Four East. Yeah. Making a, a run for, I was third in nation, nationals. And I was kind of getting, like, I've got this, you know, blah, blah, blah. I guess I could say my head got in the way. And at the bottom of that tree stump, right next to that mud hole, I was like, you know, Dustin, uh, you ain't got it. <laughs> you know, 
uh, you know, you're you're just don't be. You're not in that much control. I mean, anything could happen at any point. You got to race every lap and realize that you know God's going to push you to the end. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I'm a I'm a very firm believer that, uh, like I said earlier, you'll you'll end up exactly where you're supposed to end up, and uh, I believe yep. that the Lord rewards hard work. And uh, it sounds like you've uh, you've worked your way to where you are now in life, and you're taking the steps to make your race team, uh, you know, parallel all your hard work and effort. So uh, I have no doubt that you'll see success this year for sure. I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. But while we've got you, um, you know, just to to wrap things up, I do want to talk about your businesses. Um, So you've got All Things UTV, you have Razorade, and and what else? Uh, You said there was another one? Um, I've got a full-fledged powder coat uh, shop. It's called Apex Powder Coating. We've got the largest uh, oven in town, so... So we've got all things UTV. We started out with Full Throttle Power Sports, which which is my uh, storefront mm-hmm. and my service facility and my counterpart sales. And then we started Razor8.com, which we transitioned into AllThingsUTV.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a certain product that we sell there, which is our tender springs, require powder coating. So I, I bought a powder coating company out. And now, so everything kind of is hand-in-hand that works together yeah and i think that that's a you know that's an awesome thing to know that you have your product that you guys promote you have it from basically beginning to the customer's hands so i think that's that's amazing um but what i wanted to do is uh for for my retail spotlight i'm doing um i want to ask the man in charge his preferences and things that he recommends for people's units um I would argue that pretty much everybody, you know, in the realm, most people are uh, either in a turbo or 1000 XP or somewhere along those lines. So um, I just want to ask you, you know, if you're going to build your machine, if you had one that was built just for, you know, your everyday user, uh, you know, starting from the ground up, what would you put on there as, you know, let's start with just wheels and tires. What's your favorite combo? Um, I like the Journey tire. Um, because it's like a big horn, it's good for the East Coast. It's really well for the West Coast, actually, too, because it's a soft compound tire, and uh, it's like I said, it's like the big horn. It's really lightweight, stays together really well. I mean, tire questions are really hard to answer because that's the point of contact between the steering wheel and the terrain that you're navigating, mm-hmm. and that is all in the hands of the guy that is driving the car. That's very true. A lot of people. A lot of people ask me about tire quality and will it do this and will it do that. And I get the same feedback from my customers about tires. Well, they all cut sidewalls. And then I go, look, man, you just can't take this thing down a trail without navigating. Yeah, that's very true. And if you cut a sidewall, it's not the tire's fault. You need to realize what scenario cut that sidewall and not do it again. Yeah, very much so. You know, but outside, you know, just to answer the question, I like that journey. Yeah. Um, I'm sponsored by Vision, but I'm not just saying that. It's a good price point. It's a good tread pattern. It's a very traditional tread pattern, um, and it's a soft compound. It's a good It's a good tire. Well, good. What about wheels? What do you got in mind there? Wheels, they're all about the same. Um, I really think they're all built across the street from each other in China. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Yeah, that's the that's the deep secrets right there. <laughs> that's the deep secret. I think they are, you know, and uh, 
So it's just all about styling with wheels. Yeah. Now yeah. you get in the wheel. The wheel question is the wheel question. Yeah, I did say that, but not the real question. But, <laughs> the wheel. Um, <laughs> I like that. That's right. And then uh, <laughs> the uh, the warranty that comes with the wheel. Mm-hmm. You know, how hard is it to successfully get a wheel warranty? That is the question you want to ask. I'm not going to give any company information out there uh, as of now, but, I mean, that would be the question that I would ask whoever you were going to buy wheels from. Okay, yeah. And if they don't know that question, they don't know that answer confidently, then they have not sold enough wheels. There you go. <laughs> that's a, that's definitely a good way to look at it, for sure. But uh, we'll uh, we'll leave those, uh, those wheel questions uh, right there and just let them be. Um, what about suspension? Who do you like? I like special carriers manufacturing. Um, I've actually bought my first set um, from Clint, um, and and then he's given me a set, and then he's given me another set because I'm a sponsored driver and I've, mm-hmm. I've proven you know that we can handle it. And, but you know the thing about it is, is that the second set that he gave me, I actually left them on a shelf. Yeah, and he 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 he. he messaged me back he goes why would you do that i said brother because what you built the first time has been good enough for the first king of the hammers yeah what kind of testimony will it be when i do the second king of the hammers yeah no kidding he goes man if you want to do that that's fine i'm like brother i got full faith that we're going to finish this race with the same set that we had on entire 2018 race all the way through the entire ultra four pro rock series and into the 2019 race, it'll be all the same suspension. Now, keep in mind, I do own a powder coat shop, so I can blast and recoat per car, but it's all been the same suspension. That's amazing. That's amazing. And that's I'm, I'm glad you put in there because uh, colors may change, things may change, but it's good to know that those are the same uh, Those are the same, you know, A-arms and trailing arms, radius rods, all that fun stuff on there as well. Um, so yep. you mentioned also uh, that you, you guys build that tender spring um, you know, that's one of y'all's main focal points, I feel like. Uh, what, why, why would somebody want a tender spring upgrade? You know, some, for some people that don't know what a tender spring is, will you explain what it is, how it benefits you, and, you know, what advantages you gain by having an aftermarket? Well, uh, Polaris had built the, you know, or any car or OE manufacturer, when you get into the Pure Sport uh, UTV, they, you know, they have a deal rate spring. Um, it almost feels like a Reebok pump, you know, <laughs> yeah. back in the day. Yeah. There was something on there that did something. It really didn't make a difference of what it was. Right. You know? And so what we've done at All Things GTV is we've actually take that thing that it looks like it does something and we make it actually do something that it's actually intended to do. It's just not a styling feature or just a sales pitch on the buy sheet. So for those, it's very simple. Go ahead. It's very simple. We just add a little bit of spring rating to the spring that's already there, and it functions like it actually needs to do. Yeah, absolutely. And and for those who who don't know what the tender spring is, it's the uh, on all the razor shocks, I believe uh, most of them. Uh, I know some of them come with progressive rate, but when you if you have two springs on the coil, that top spring is the tender spring. And it's typically on a on a stock unit. It's completely compressed. It's just smashed all together, and you really don't get much benefit out of it at all. 
Um, and, and what he's recommending is by adding a little bit more spring right there, you actually expand that spring and you actually help help the spring do what it was supposed to do um, by being an active part of the suspension rather than just being, you know, basically a two-inch plastic puck that sits on the top of your shock. Exactly right. So that's uh, that's good. Now, you know, for our listeners, uh, what's the price of, you know, I know that some of them, like I mentioned earlier, uh, some of those require a slider and an upgraded top spring. Um, some of them, like the turbos, you don't have to buy the secondary spring. What's the difference between those two kits? Um, it's, I mean, they're, most of our four-pack kits are $240, and that's from the general, mm-hmm. Polaris General, all the way up to the XP Turbo Walker Evans Edition. Okay. There's a more expensive kit. In 17, Polaris had gotten away from the front dual rake setup and went to a progressive rake spring. And when they done that, they took the slider out of the out of the whole scenario. So that that more expensive so, kit just includes the slider and the upper spring. That more expensive kit includes a lower spring. Gotcha. Um, and then the slider and then the tennis spring in the kit as well. Good. That's very good to let people know. And uh, like I said, if you're not sure what's on your vehicle, just go out there and look at the front and. If you have two coils or if you have one, you know, there's your answer right there. Um, So moving on, uh, we talked about springs, wheels, and tires, and suspension. Uh, What do you like to use for axles? You know, going to King of the Hammers is a very expensive and long-distance travel for, you know, me and my team. Mm Mm-hmm. I've never had a problem with a Rhino 2.0. Really? That's that's awesome. Never. Never. Now, going that far, you know, it's kind of like, unfortunately, America and everything is kind of a placebo effect. You buy and spend the most money, you feel like you're getting the best product. Right. I feel like RCV has really got a great product. Um I've broken RCV axles, I've broken turner axles, and I've never broken a Rhino 2.0. At King of the Hammers, the first year, we run a turner axle with limit straps, Mm -hmm. limiting straps. Uh, This year, we ran RCV Pro 2s without limiting straps. Um, Like I said, you know, you spend a little bit more money, you you get just a little bit of insurance, man, you Mm -hmm. know, of kind of what everybody else does, and that's what you do. You know, the thing about it is I'm almost 100% confident that we could have ran that entire race and finished on a Rhino 2.0. As a matter of fact, in 2020, I'm going to make it happen because the Turbo S that I bought has Rhino 2.0 axles in it, Mm -hmm. and I'm confident enough in it that I'll get it done. That's amazing. And that's a bold statement uh, to say that, you know, that that, that set of axles – um, is going to last you an entire King of Hammers because, you know, again, that's a that's the toughest one-day race that's ever out there. Um, yes, sir. That's great. So uh, I'm looking at anything else. Um, you know, if you were just, again, recommending to the, to the average Joe something else to put on their vehicle or an upgrade that you would prefer that you would have to have on yours, you know, is there anything else that comes to mind? Man, you know, safety comes to mind. Yeah. I've seen a lot of injuries in, uh, in my short career. Uh, just spectating and watching and promoting, you know, doing, I would do uh, doors, you know, full doors mm-hmm. to keep your feet in. And then I would do harnesses, at least the auto lash from PRP. Mm-hmm. Uh, that They're easy to get in and out of. They're price point, you know, 90 to $110. Uh, yeah. 
That way you're fully secure and there's no questions about because everybody wants to get in a UTV and they want to treat it like a four-wheeler. It's just like a little hop hip thing. You know, it's not that dangerous or anything like that, but literally, you know, little do they know that it's a car. Right. And you should treat it like a car. And it's more dangerous than a car because you're going to be content and uh, you're going to be complacent. And the next thing you know, you're hurt or your arm's crushed or you're falling out of it or you're getting rolled over on top of. So, I mean, just keep in mind, just because you can buy a steering wheel didn't give you the, you know, the experience to drive an off-road vehicle. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, safety first, and then learn how to drive it, and then that way nobody gets hurt. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I think that's something that we repeatedly talk about on the podcast is just safety, and especially investing in, you know, an aftermarket cage is something I always recommend, and especially harnesses. Um, the stock seat belts again, are just, you know, uh, they leave a little bit of question marks in the air. So. Well, people come out and they overdrive it because yeah. they feel like they're in their car. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, that's very true. Uh, you know, I, didn't, I got my experience in dirt bike driving, you know, four-wheeler race, I mean, four-wheeler, you know, and then dirt biking and stuff like that, off-road experience. And and they make it easy to buy a Polaris Razor, and then the experience is something that you got to experience, you know, before you can be overconfident. But being in a cage and you feel like you're in a race car or you feel like you're, you're in something that's really secure. And that's where a lot of people, like I said, get complacent and they get hurt. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for the more experienced person, you know, I, I see the, uh, do you guys carry RS1 diffs? Thanks for listening to the show yes, today. I want to give you guys a reminder. Check us out on Instagram and Facebook. Yeah, so, like us, subscribe, um, you know, do all that fun stuff. We are racing on the rocks on all platforms. And make sure you guys sign up uh, online most of the other to be in our contest. Free gear, free hats, free shirts, free parts. So it's a great thing to have. Um, the uh, list is, is growing every single week. I'm getting a new box from a new sponsor. So that one lucky person is going to win something awesome. And we'll draw that at the end of the Southern Rock Racing Series. Like I said, Said, subscribe, like us, download, do whatever. Um, it really does help us be able to you know, further the content, and we can get some better equipment to uh, kind of clear up some of the podcast. But hope you enjoyed uh, you the podcast today. Be on the lookout for the next know, one. And thanks for listening. And, you know, making it back to the trailer. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's a huge, huge thing. Um, so I think that's great. But uh, was there anything else that you wanted to highlight? I mean, you know, I just want to tell my story about where I started. It's not always been uh, the limelight. You know, a lot of hard work. Uh, it's 8.30 right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, I, <laughs> and uh, you know, and it's just, uh, I, I want to really, you know, tell everybody that it's a dream come true. And uh, all of my customers and everybody that believes in me and, uh, you know, it's, I'm over the fact that, it's a dream come true, and now we got to go win. You know, out you know outside of being complacent, uh, now we got to go win this year and really uh, show out for our sponsors and our friends and uh, and our fans. Uh, but really, want to say I appreciate everybody that uh, supports us, buys from us, believes in us, and realizes that I'm just just like you, a blue collar guy. I mean. Maybe one of these days I'll have a jet pilot and a jet, but we'll all ride on it together because my motto at work and in life is we all go up together. Uh, I think that that's extremely admirable, and uh, I think that anybody that takes the time to listen to this will uh, definitely see that you're a transparent man who 
exactly that. Just wants the best for everybody and for everybody to come up together. So, um, but Dustin, it's been a great chance to talk to you. Uh, it's been awesome to hear your story and uh, I hope that those listening have gotten a chance to be inspired to see that hard work can get you anywhere you want to be in life and uh, just good luck in this year's race season and uh, I know that we'll be floating around here. Uh, uh, my team will be floating around and I hope we run into you out on the trail. Um, are you going to be at Adventure Off-Road Park in April? Yes sir, we will be there. That'll be our first regional East Coast race. Okay. And, uh, and in my opinion... I'm kind of there to defend the title that I lost. Mm -hmm. So I'm coming out swinging, man. We've got a car from Bikeman Performance that uh, is making about 245 horsepower Woo! with all the best suspension components on it. Man. Uh, and once again, you know, navigating, keeping the car together, uh, that'll be my first race East Coast to prove what I'm feeling, you know, to win, you know, take that number one. Now, my cocky are bold enough to say that I'm going to win. I'm not, but I tell you what, I'm not giving anything up this year. That's amazing, and like I said, that's uh, that's the mentality that makes for uh, for someone you really want to cheer for. So, uh, I'll actually be at AOP. Um, I may have a few people from my team there as well. Um, we'll be running around doing interviews for anybody listening. We'll be there doing interviews, uh, and I know I'm going to have to make a stop. See, uh, I'll be there Saturday, so I'll be there before race day, uh, before you guys take off and. If I can steal you for a minute or two, I'll ask how qualifying went and uh, how you think you're going to end up for the day. And, you know, again, until then, uh, best of luck. And if there's anything else we could ever do for you, if there's anything else you want to say, any more shout-outs you want to give, feel free. But uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm good. I think we're, uh, we touched on everything we wanted to talk about. Yes, sir. Everything's great. Thanks for the interview. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Dustin, uh, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. And uh, like I said, I'll see you in April. Okay, thanks for everything you do for the sport, sir. Yes, sir. Have a good one. Bye.